0: us for today's panel discussion, Gonzalez v. Google at the Supreme Court. Last Tuesday, February 21st, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Gonzalez v. Google, a case about whether Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act shields platforms from liability when they use algorithms to recommend content. In Gonzalez, plaintiffs have sued Google, the parent company of YouTube, alleging that YouTube's algorithms aided terrorist recruitment by helping would-be terrorists find radicalizing videos. They argue that YouTube's video recommendations are distinct from publishing and thus unprotected by Section 230. If accepted, their arguments would expose many websites' algorithmic matching features to litigation and upend the platforms and tools that Americans rely on to find and organize information online. However, last week, the Supreme Court things went better than expected. I'm going to throw it to our esteemed panel to discuss. I'm Will Duffield, a policy analyst here at Cato. And joining me are Tommy Berry, research fellow with the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies here at the Cato Institute, Nicole Sad Bembridge, an associate counsel at NetChoice, Jess Mears, and Legal Advocacy Counsel at Chamber of Progress, and Gabrielle Shea, Senior Policy Analyst at the Bipartisan Policy Center. So, to the panel, I guess starting with Tommy down down at the end, what were your initial reactions to how the court treated litigants' arguments last week? What was your first gut takeaway
1: I mean, the the word that came up the most often when uh, the lawyer for the challengers was speaking was confused or some version, variant of that word, baffled, uh, stymied. Uh, at one point, uh, Justice Thomas asked a question. The lawyer responded and said, "Was was that responsive?" And Justice Thomas said something like, "It was responsive. I just didn't understand it." So there was a, a quite a difference. Uh, both the actual challenger argued, and also a uh, uh, lawyer from the Solicitor General's office representing the United States as an amicus Curie making some similar arguments, but some Uh, distinct arguments that they didn't perfectly overlap, and it was clear that the justices were at the very least following and considered more plausible the arguments made by the the Solicitor General's office on behalf of the United States. The the, the challengers themselves, their lawyer Eric Schnapper, was focusing more on a theory that things like thumbnails or URLs are generated by websites themselves and exempt from uh, Section 230 for that reason uh, in the sense that it's content created by the the websites, and the justices just didn't seem convinced or even to think that was plausible whereas I think the Solicitor General's argue, office made the argument the justices were expecting which is the notion that uh, up next things that are commonly called recommendations are not subject to, to 230 because they're the, uh, the speech of the websites and there it wasn't clear that the justices agreed with it but they but they at least seemed to treat it with as, as plausible
2: Yeah, um, I also got a strong sense that they were um, confused by the arguments, but maybe also confused why why they took the case. Um, I wonder if they saw something that they found compelling in the petition or in the reply brief that maybe they didn't hear um, during oral arguments. And I also thought uh, that we saw the justices recognizing in real time the implications on the internet for accepting Gonzalez's argument. Um, So they were recognizing that there really is no passive or brute hosting that's readily separable uh, from the act of presenting uh, in the context of public-facing content. And then uh, Justice Barrett, I think, really hit the nail on the head when she emphasized that it's not just you know big tech that's affected by this, it's also users um, that if, you, under Gonzalez's theory, a retweet or even a like, or in the context of Reddit, an upvote or downvote, that would also be um, in, in the crosshairs for litigation. Yeah, I echo
0: the
3: exact same thoughts of my panelists. Um, I'll just say this. I So I actually went to the the arguments. I got a chance. I was one of the golden ticket holders, as were the rest of yeah, the three of us. Um, and I walked in with a lot of cynicism. To Nicole's point, I had been thinking up until that point, there's a reason why this case was taken up. We heard in the Malwarebytes dissent with Justice Thomas; he's eager to, you know, rewrite the rules of Section 230, reinterpret the law. And so I went in thinking this is the heat death of the internet and Section 230, and I was um, uh, uh, surprised. I was, I was, uh, I came out kind of cautiously optimistic. And I think, you know, to Nicole's point, I, I agree with her. I think the reason the case was taken, I mean, keep in mind, the the question had changed uh, so frequently, even during the arguments themselves. Um, I think Justice Thomas and, and folks who, you know, were probably interested in hearing the case probably thought that they were going to be hearing a different question. The case started out as, does Section 230 apply to traditional editorial functions, which is a very broad sort of first amendment slash 230 question that could actually bring about some interesting and detrimental consequences depending on on you know where the court would go with it um, and i think that's sort of the original question that uh, the court was interested in in hearing it then changed to you know later on in the briefs it changed to okay well does section 230 actually only apply you know not to recommendations for example recommendations are out of scope of 230 and that's also a broad section 230 question with interesting implications and then the question changed again to, all right, we concede that 230 applies to some recommended content, but we don't think 230 applies when you use technology, i.e. algorithms, to do the recommendation. And I think once it got there to that, that was the question that was actually discussed in arguments, I think it became so convoluted and so you know thin that even the petitioner um, themselves, I think, struggled to be able to draw that difference between Recommendations algorithmically done and not algorithmically done, or neutrally versus not neutrally done. Um, so I don't. Know, I walked out cautiously optimistic. I think there's still room for the court to. Um, Draw some arbitrary distinctions in the law, but I also, you know, we heard throughout not just the confusion, but the court seemed generally uninterested in even touching Section 230. There were a couple questions that came up, such as, isn't this Congress's, uh, you know, goal? If they, if, if if, uh, Congress did never intended to include algorithms in 230 scope, then Congress should should write that into the law as well.
4: Hi, thank you. That is a perfect segue into Bipartisan Policy Center's amicus brief. Um, We took the position that the Supreme Court is not the best suited to resolve any outstanding issues about Section 230 and what it means. We took the position that Congress is much better suited to do that. So we too found it heartening to see that the court seemed aware of the significant implications of any decision that could change what folks have, have come to see as the current status quo, um, which you know, is a broad interpretation of immunity there. And I think you know, Justice Kagan put it quite well when she expressed that the Supreme Court justices are not the nine greatest experts on the internet.
0: Thank you, and that, that in a way segues or jumps ahead to, to another question. All of you filed or helped to draft amicus briefs in Gonzalez. Could you briefly explain what your briefs argue and why you felt that argument was important to put in front of the court? Um, Maybe, Jess, with Chamber of Progress, you can start. And Gabby, feel free to go back to your brief and and reiterate why um, this is a a role for Congress, not the courts. I, I found that a novel, compelling argument.
3: Yeah, so um, I'm with the Chamber of Progress. We're a left-of-center trade association, and we're focused on, you know, we make progressive arguments about how technology helps consumers and how we can make sure it continues to help consumers. Um, So our brief actually focused on the impact to, the potential impact to marginalized users. Um, This is the idea that, you know, it's really, as, as I mentioned previously, it's really hard to draw some of these arbitrary distinctions for when we're talking about, neutral versus non-neutral algorithms, for example, when we're talking about um, recommend- recommended content. And so you know, part of the reason why these internet services use algorithms and they do recommended content is they do it to make sure that users are receiving the most high quality and relevant information possible because as you can imagine, there is a lot of content online. Not all of it is uh, um, super high quality. Um, so, you know, one of the examples that from our brief that we point out is what would happen to um, LGBTQ plus resources if you've got, um, you know, kids that are from these sort of marginalized backgrounds that need access to um, those types of resources, but the internet services feel that. Promoting or prioritizing that content would put them in a biased realm; it would be non-neutral. Um, those services just may choose not to recommend them and not to prioritize that information. Then um, just who knows what what uh, um, those users would receive. The other point um, I'm not I don't think we made this in our brief, but it, it's something that kind of tangents on on the marginalized community is you know, the irony of, of this case is that ISIS content without any recommendations, without algorithms, would likely be more pervasive than it actually appeared in the case at issue. Because again, the entire idea behind algorithms is to make sure that you're only seeing relevant content. Well, I don't search ISIS content, but if there is no algorithm uh, sort of tailored to my interests, it wouldn't surprise me that that content randomly appears in my feed. So that's sort of, that, that's where we focused um, our brief.
0: I think, as uh the the Cato moderator, I would be remiss if I didn't note that we are all minorities of one with uh, unique individual preferences, and so when we think about you know groups of minorities, there's a very libertarian point in in recognizing the individual as sort of the smallest minority you can imagine, but one that's nevertheless served by these algorithms
4: absolutely and I think that does. Tie into the bigger picture in Congress. So, the Bipartisan Policy Center filed our brief taking the position that Congress was better suited than the Supreme Court. And part of what we, you know, based that off of is the tremendous, you know, interest we've seen from both Republicans and Democrats in addressing this issue. It was part of the Republican commitment to America agenda in the context of children's safety online. President Biden has mentioned 230 reform in his Wall Street Journal opinion piece and in the readout on the White House listening session on tech platform accountability. We've seen both Republican and Democrat lawmakers in Congress address bills. There is some divergence on a few key priority areas, but we're also seeing agreement and bipartisanship on many areas, such as transparency and reporting requirements for platforms, providing researchers with access to data that large internet companies hold, and addressing particular types of harm or particular types of content. So the role that algorithms play in potentially both perpetuating and mitigating online harms, and things like foreign influence campaigns, hate speech, uh, mis- and disinformation, the list goes on and on, child sexual abuse material, human trafficking, terrorist content, very salient <laughs> these days. Um, and you know we see that bipartisan interest, and so we do think that Congress is positioned to take up these issues if they decide that doing so is appropriate. And they could do that through addressing 230 directly or through one of a variety of other means.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's important there to recognize as well the the extent to which rulings or legislating from the bench can crowd out that action. I've seen it around the Van Buren decision a couple of years ago and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act where even though The court didn't do a lot to fix abusive uses of the CFAA. Because they'd ruled on it, there's much less appetite today for any real congressional fix, because it's seen as, well, the court dealt with that, even though they haven't. Um, Nicole and then Tommy, please describe our brief well. (laughs)
2: Sure. Um, So I'm with NetChoice. We're a trade association that promotes free expression and free enterprise online. Um, And we filed our amicus brief in hopes of demystifying the concept of an algorithm for the court. Um, So I think that they're often... um, Wrongly considered this kind of new, newfangled, s- scary concept, but really they're integral to the functioning of the internet, and they've been there almost since the internet's inception. Um, we explained that algorithmic sorting is why search works; um, it's why services that are, you know, less controversial, Wikipedia, Yelp, etc., works, and it's also why the internet is as safe as it is today.
1: All right. And I should mention that Will was a big contributor to our own amicus brief, so please correct me and add on to what I have to say about it. Um, We touched on a few different topics. One, at Cato, we care about, you know, textualism, uh, staying faithful to the text of a statute. Uh, This is a kind of unusual circumstance where a law has been around for as long as Section 230 has, has been interpreted tons of times in the circuit courts of appeal, but never at the Supreme Court. So a ton of language that's not in the statute, but in judicial decisions, has kind of built up and almost become the text itself and almost threatened to replace the text. So part of our brief was just to remind the court that like, even if these tests that, or phrases that the courts of appeals have developed might be useful shorthands, they don't actually supersede the text itself. And a big one was the traditional editorial function language that the courts of appeals often return to. We stressed that that's simply a tool to ask the fundamental question that the text asks, which is, is the lawsuit treating, uh, tre- treating the defendant as as a publisher, that's one of the that's one of the type that's essentially the type of claim that that Section 230 grants immunity for. Another thing we we focused on is this issue of neutrality. Does the algorithm have to be neutral? The Ninth Circuit in the decision below had had mentioned neutral tools. It wasn't clear how much that influenced its decision or how much it hung on that. Um, and and uh, we said for the for, uh, foremost, it doesn't have to be neutral in general if what you're doing is simply arranging your website or whatever it is. I mean, one of the analogies that the, the, the Google pointed out was that everyone has to organize whatever speech product they're putting out. What, uh, newspapers have to decide what's the headline uh, TV channels have to decide what's on at 4 a.m. and what's on in prime time. And Section 230 protection doesn't hinge on whether they're making a conscious decision when they do that or whether they just pass it off to an algorithm that's unpredictable. Neutrality can come into play in specific circumstances. For example, if they're contributing to Ill- illegality, there have been some decisions uh, about that, um, but there's no evidence of, of that in this case. And then finally, we also touched on kind of the consequences and the importance of 230 not just a so-called big tech, which a lot of people see this, use the shorthand that Section 230 is a protection for big tech, but it's not just the big tech companies. In fact, the more difficult a regulation is to comply with, or the more likely you are to be subject to uh, lawsuits, it's smaller companies that are more likely to be put out of business by that. As, as Lisa Blatt, Google's lawyer, even candidly said uh, during oral argument at one point, like, if you rule against us, we won't go out of business, but a lot of other people will. And so part of our brief was was emphasizing that point, that this isn't just about big tech, it's probably even more about the startups and the companies without a lot of resources that just can't, uh, can't expose them Themselves to the amount of liability they, they would have if Section 230 wasn't a strong protection.
0: On neutrality, I felt that a few of the conversations about neutrality between Gorsuch and both Schnapper and Blatt went off the rails because they weren't using neutrality as other courts have. In Roommates and Force, Courts held that so-called neutral tools, which can be used for both lawful and unlawful purposes, receive Section 230's protection. But at the Supreme Court, this idea seemed as though it got mixed up with content neutrality. So did you guys recognize that as well? And where else did you think the court might have erred or simply misunderstood a a concept being argued in front of it? or is there anything that worries any of you there?
2: I think the focus on uh, neutrality was definitely um, among of the more concerning um, derailments of the oral arguments that we saw. And I think even under a finding for Google, they could potentially limit um, C1 scope in a worrying way by emphasizing neutrality as some kind of prerequisite for our 230's protection.
3: Yeah, I'll, um, I'll, I'll echo that point and, and just note that um, for those of you who may have tuned in for the uh, Twitter v. Tamna case as well, not to pivot this conversation off of Gonzalez, but um, that entire discussion was about what aiding and abetting is from a legal perspective. And it, we, we didn't even really touch the Anti-Terrorism Act. We were really just touching on um, the center involved in, in the act um, at issue, and the Beauty of the Section Two Thirty C One immunity is that we don't have to go down that road again. We don't have to draw arbitrary lines. We don't have to think about um, was the service in uh, was the service's conduct were they acting neutrally, for example. Um, and so, to Nicole's uh, very good point, um, I also remain concerned that if the court tries to draw that distinction, then the lower courts and, and, and uh, plaintiffs' attorneys are, are watching that, and you can bet that every single, almost every single uh, case regarding uh, uh, third-party content for social media companies is going to be framed as this, well, the service wasn't acting neutrally type claim. And it's not a stretch. There's several social media, quote-unquote, addiction cases right now that are literally waiting in the wings. They literally put themselves on pause to see what the court is going to say in Gonzalez um, uh, later this term. So, you know, To that point, when the courts, when the lower courts are now deciphering between whether the service acted neutrally or not, which is going to be a question of fact, which is not going to likely be able to be resolved on a motion to dismiss, like Section 230C1 is typically resolved, um, then to my point, there is no, you know, Section 230C1's immunity is mooted. There's no point in using it as a defense
4: yeah i'll um chime in on that as well um agreed that trying to decide what is and is not a neutral algorithm would be very loaded if the court takes that up there does not appear to be a clear line and the justices did repeatedly ask questions about where to draw the line So I think the other thing to keep in mind here is any commentary from the court on what is or is not neutral in an algorithm context could have implications far beyond the future of the internet as well. Algorithms power so many technologies that we use every day. And I think that as the world becomes more and more interconnected and more devices become IoT devices, the scope of what this decision could impact increases drastically, and I do think Congress is getting increasingly aware of this um, and is motivated to take up some of these questions.
3: We were also having a really interesting discussion right before this. Um, I don't know if you want to drill down into the discussion, but you raised a really good point about um, how, you know, what even is neutrality and the fact that a service could have a random algorithm. It could say, first in, you know, first out. Whatever, whatever anybody posts is what you're going to see. And, and you raised a really good point. Even that is not considered neutral.
2: Yeah, and also, um, if we were to have perfect algorithmic neutrality, and I also don't know what that means. just Is that random, just totally random selection? Um, we wouldn't have any tools to suppress the ISIS content that got us here in the first place.
1: It was interesting to see. At one point, um, Justice Kagan in the oral argument sort of suggested that algorithms didn't didn't exist or were not used on the internet at the time uh, Section 230 was enacted. And then there was uh, Lisa Blatt was allowed to pretty lengthily explain that, that that was an error in history. I think she quoted a lot from the Center for Democracy and Technology um, amicus brief. And I was struck that the justices let her kind of give that history for a pretty long time without the usual questioning, which to me indicated that they were really considered Concerned about getting that history right, and they realized just <laughs> probably just how much they, they don't know yet about that. Um, but that I think that's really important for the justices to keep in mind because so often when courts think that something new has happened since a statute was enacted and that congress didn't anticipate it that's when they're more likely to depart from either the plain text or perhaps the intent behind it because they can say oh the lack of prediction for this new thing means that you know we have a li- there's no const- there's no congressional intent or e- either in the history or in the statute itself for us to follow so we just have to come up with a new rule
0: some of you've touched some of you have touched on this but how did the court seem to try to grasp the stakes of this case? And I guess for for Tommy to start, should it concern us as textualists to see the court concerning itself with outcomes and economic effects rather than just the text of the statute?
1: Uh, I don't think it's it's concerning. I mean, I think... uh, uh, in any in any case, there are the court has limited resources of time and attention, and to me, it makes perfect sense that the if you make them aware of the stakes, then they have even more of an incentive to get this right and to look deeply into these things, like the history, the complicated history behind it, get to know the technology better. It's just whether this should happen or should not. It's just a, a fact of nature and judicial resources that if they're really sobered that this is a serious issue, they're going to put more time uh, and Care into it, or at least they should, um, and hopefully be less likely to, to make some errors. I was struck again in the oral argument after Lisa Blatt said, "You know, we won't go out of business," but a lot of others were. There was just a silence for it seemed like five, five, ten seconds, and that's pretty rare at Supreme Court oral arguments these days. It's usually quite a hot bench, and it actually seemed like they were they were contemplating that pretty seriously.
2: Um, I think your general sense, though, Will, that um, the justices were fearful is is spot on. Um, At at one point, Justice Kavanaugh said, we have so many um, Amici telling us about the devastating economic effects uh, a finding for Gonzalez would have, and we need to take those seriously. Uh, Justice Kagan also kept emphasizing the concerns about upsetting the digital economy. Um, I think Amici made a really big difference in this case and maybe alerted the justices to the, the stakes of the issue.
3: Yeah, my favorite moment, I think, out of, you know, besides um, Amy Coney Barrett's, uh, what about the users? What about retweeting? And the
2: rice pilaf.
3: And the rice pilaf um, was Justice Kagan's sort of existential crisis mid-discussion. Uh, she, You see her go, well, it can't be the case that these services are not liable for anything, for any of the content. But then she also says in the same sentence but I don't think it makes sense for them to be liable for all of the content either. Um, And you could sort of see with her, she was was sort of working out, well, this is why we have Section 230. This is why it's important because again, where do you draw that line? She seemed to really recognize, you know, a, a different outcome or a different decision here would mean that these services may not host user-generated content, and that can't possibly be how the Internet um, works either. So um, to the point about sort of the textualist uh, question, I'm not super concerned about that, only because, and I, I think it was pretty clear, I, I think the court likely appreciated this as well, but, you know, the the code authors of of Section 230 themselves, I think they recognized and anticipated that they needed to write the statute in a way that um, would anticipate future technology, like generative AI, for example. Um, And so I think keeping actually to the Texas statute is what gets us to the inevitable goals of Section 230, which is allowing for the online marketplace to thrive and allowing for these services to start up and host uh, user-created content.
4: I think the goal of Section 230 was also a highly discussed and, in some ways, disputed point during the oral arguments as well. But if you do want to look at this from a textual standpoint, we don't even have 30 words to guide us here. So I think, you know, in trying to figure out what those words on the page mean, if there aren't many of them, you might need to bring some context in simply to interpret the text itself
1: yeah for for statutory interpretation nerds, there's an interesting debate or undercurrent that uh, which is whether titles of, of uh, statutes should count uh, i'm uh, Justice Jackson was uh, heavily stressing the the title of one of the the sections, good you know immunity for. Good, Good Samaritan uh, removals. I don't, correct me on the exact text, um, but she was focusing more on that. Uh, I, personally, I, I and some other textual textualists think are skeptical of focusing on titles. Those are often not drafted with as much care by Congress. Sometimes they're not even selected by the members of Congress, and they don't, tell you explicitly anything about the legal test or the legal rule. It's what's below that that says what is the test for what kind of claim you're immune from. So it seemed that Justice Jackson was trying to get get an idea of what Congress's intent was from that title. But I I fear of going too far and, and having an idea of what that indicates in terms of intent
0: supersede the actual text. Justice Jackson seemed like a real outlier throughout oral arguments where did she differ from other justices in in her approach to the case? What seemed as though it animated animated her concerns? um, And ultimately, how do you think that may affect whatever ruling we get? Nicole?
2: Um, Sure. So interesting we're talking about textualism because I think that Justice Jackson's... um, proposal as an alternative to the Barnes test, which I think is extracted directly from the text, um, was a textual. So she was making a textualist argument that the test we use, which I believe is derived exactly from the text, is an incorrect one. So it, it just goes to show that there's some subjectivity even when we're talking about textualism because it means different things to different people.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. I also think, um, you know, respectfully, I, I think Justice Jackson was trying to get up to speed on Section 230. It's, you know, it, I think the rest of the court was was having sort of a different discussion, whereas she was trying to understand um, the origin of the law, how the law operates. I got a little nervous when she talked about how she didn't think the three-part test was the right test for 230, even though we've had that three-part test for, um, you know, decades now. Um, I'd be very concerned if that got abridged. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think. For her, she was she was really drilling into sort of what a lot of non Section two hundred and thirty experts uh, face when they're looking at two hundred and thirty, uh, looking at the statute, um, is trying to understand you know what, how does this law work and and what does it mean in the context of uh, web technologies.
4: I think Justice Jackson as well. We we already mentioned the fact that court activity can potentially quell legislative activity, and I think justice jackson i'm far from an expert on her views and her history but she may have been concerned that depending on how the ruling was written it might suggest that there is no reason to take action against online harms and perhaps her line of questioning was trying to signal that taking you know, some consideration of these harms and potentially acting to address them, if not through the court, through a different forum or under a different fact pattern might still be worthwhile. To
0: pick up, um, uh, well, by all means, yeah. ah. to pick up one of Justice Kavanaugh's quotes and and really challenges Um, posed in this case that I think sort of should or or ought to echo around the 230 reform space. Um, He says, and the statute does refer to to the organization and, and the definition, as he was saying, of interactive computer services means one that filters, screens, picks, chooses, and organizes content. And your position, I think, would mean the very thing that makes the website an interactive computer service also means that it loses the protection of 230. And just as a textual and structural matter, we don't usually read a statute to, in essence, defeat itself. And that, that last you know, that quote about a statute being read to defeat itself, to me really threw a lot of the distributor liability Claims or, or arguments for 230 reform into question, um, but how, how do you see um, arguments against Section 230 or current interpretations of Section 230 um, reading the statute as, in essence, defeating itself?
1: I'll defer to someone.
4: Yes. I can start. Sure. Um, So I think that obviously reading a statute or a provision of a statute, as we were in many instances in this case, in the context of the broader goal of the statute, in the context of the statute as a whole, does make sense, Um, and I think that the court picking up on that is really a signal that they're aware of what could happen if they try to adjust the historical interpretation of this provision in a way that is not clean. And I think that the court repeatedly was looking for a clean line to draw, and everyone was struggling to find one. And so I think that comment was kind of speaking to that broader line drawing question.
3: Yeah, I think with regard to the claims that we're seeing the arguments against section 230 and how section 230 is applied um, we're seeing this development of, of, of plaintiffs attorneys trying to, to forge their claims as conduct claims versus um, underlying content claims and the reason for that is because usually what's at issue with section 230 cases is who owned the content who created the content is it the you know is it Twitter for example um, or was it you know the person who uh, uh, tweeted? Um, and so, we, again, one of the ways to get around that is to say, well, we're not arguing about the content at issue. This is actually what was argued in Gonzalez. They're saying, well, we, we recognize that YouTube didn't create the, the um, alleged ISIS videos. Um, we're, we're getting at YouTube's conduct in themselves in recommending that content. And so I think that's sort of what... It, Justice Kavanaugh was getting at is that, you know, there's also two other parts to this statute, uh, to the test interpreting uh, Section 230C1 immunity, and that is that if you are, if you as the plaintiff are trying to treat the uh, service at issue as, you know, if your claims are treating them as being liable uh, for their publisher activities, such as curation as as discussed under 230F4's definition of um, uh, uh, an interactive computer service, um, then that too is also protected activity. And it's really crucial that that point comes out because this is is also what protects these services um, to be able to do content moderation, to act upon third-party content as well. Um, So to abridge that uh, uh, aspect of Section 230 would also be detrimental. It's not just about holding the service liable for what someone said, it's also about holding that service liable for their publisher um, capabilities on what that person has said.
2: I think that uh, Justice Kavanaugh, that, that's an amazing quote. I think uh, several justices, other justices echoed that sentiment. At one point Justice Kagan said, every time you have hosting content you also have presentation choices of that content. So um, if, they, if they find in, in Gonzalez's favor, text in 230 is basically rendered a dead letter.
1: Yeah, I saw this tension, in particular, running through the Solicitor General Office of Solicitor General's argument on behalf of the United States. It seemed like it kept being unclear and kept sort of waffling. Would this be a really huge deal or almost not a deal, a big deal at all, if they ruled for the challengers in this case? Because the United States kept trying to argue, well, there's still protection for the content. You still can't sue based on the content. You can only sue because of the recommendation. But then, doesn't any, doesn't the harm from a recommendation? always have to do with the fact something about what's in the thing that you're recommending you know you c- the harm of rec- allegedly recommending ISIS videos is because of the content in them that's different from recommending rice pilaf videos or something like that and so the solicitor general's office kept trying to say no this wouldn't be that big a deal cuz there's not that many causes of action that are based on just recommend recommending versus based on speech all the typical causes of action like defamation those are based on speech and y- you wouldn't be liable for any more of those than you are now. But I just didn't see how it, it, that was compatible with, with the notion of rec- a claim for recommending a particular type of video that says a particular thing.
0: A lot of that seemed to to redound to whether or not the procedural shield of Section 230 was, was appreciated or respected. Um, If you ignore its role in in providing that procedural out, then you can get yourself to the the Solicitor General's position of, well, what effect would this have? But practically, those thousand duck bites of of lawsuits that you have to defend and and pay to litigate um, end up being very consequential.
1: Yeah, that was another thing that probably wasn't discussed or emphasized enough, which is it's not just important whether you end up being liable for something or not. It's do you defeat it at the motion to dismiss stage or do you defeat it after discovery? Like these things, practically speaking, for the expenses especially of small tech companies are huge those that difference is hugely consequential. So whether so the Solicitor General's office in particular tried to say there's no difference between winning because you have Section two thirty immunity or winning because there's no state toward that this fits into, but in practical effect, those are two can be two very different ways to win.
0: Millions of dollars in, in difference. Um, I guess, looking at the time, oh, I'm going to ask the panel what sort of ruling they expect at this point. And I know it's always hard to go on the record and, and make predictions, but uh, do we think we'll have something narrow? Will the will, will we get a ruling at all? Um, let's start down down with
4: Gabri. Oh boy, starting with the prediction question, that is always a rough spot. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that if we do see a ruling on the merits, it will be narrow. I don't think the justices are going to come out of nowhere and issue a broad ruling that radically changes Section 230, at least not on purpose. Um, The justices have historically been crafty with their questions and they will ask questions that don't necessarily align with the views that they take in their eventual decision. So it's tough to know for sure, but they did seem aware of the stakes here and I do think that will guide them towards a narrower as opposed to a broader ruling is probably a good time for me to note that um, while my views are
3: on behalf of Chamber of Progress, they are not representative of our partners, our partner companies.
4: Um, so I imagine same goes for you. Echoed. Yeah. Um, I th- oh, sorry. Quick caveat. BPC does not have partners in the strict sense, but um, we are not, you know, my personal prediction is not coming from BPC.
3: Likewise. Um, so. I, I think Google can probably sleep easy, um, and, and the reason I say that is because this case had no business being in the Supreme Court in the first place, even with the original, the, the broader question. Um, if you actually look at the petitioner's complaint at the lower court level, it, we don't even know what was at the videos at issue. Um, it, I don't know if I recommend this, but if you actually go look up ICE's content on YouTube, the first Ten pages or so of results are news about ISIS. It's not, you know, I didn't. Maybe it's maybe it's the algorithm, but um, I didn't really encounter any radicalization type or propaganda type videos when I did when I did a search on this. But um, I just thought it was really telling that, you know, the we don't even know it was at the videos. They weren't described at issue. Um, and the second sort of point there too is, and this came up in the the Twitter v. Etamina case as well, but. ISIS claimed the attacks for the, you know, the Paris terrorist attacks in 2015. But I, I don't think it's been confirmed that ISIS, you know, perpetrated those those attacks as well. And so we we don't even know, you know, if the folks who did perpetrate those attacks were on YouTube, looked at, you know, the the, the content at issue. So uh, this all all goes to to I think say that likely Google will be okay here. What I'm more concerned about, which is why I think you know, I think it was Nicole that made the point of it's, it's not just about Google winning, but it's about you know what the court will do to the internet in, in getting to that result. Um, I think I'm more concerned about the court sort of opining on how to reinterpret uh, Section 230 C1, and they may not touch it just to the to the points that have been made already, but that's sort of my, my concern.
2: Yeah, I I strongly agree with Jess. And um, I also got a sense of reticence uh, from from the court. I'm not sure they want to even touch it. Um, It's it's possible that they dismiss it as improvidently granted. It's also possible they resolve it on the basis of the Tomna question. So um, if if Tomna fails and there's no underlying claim, uh, Gonzalez disappears.
1: Yeah, I, I also think that's the single most likely outcome And dismiss. Dismiss is improvidently granted is essentially where the court says it was a mistake for us to take this. You don't have any ruling on the merits. It's as if the court never took up the, the case, and so the decision from the, the Court of Appeals below is the precedential decision. But there's no Supreme Court precedent set. Every other Court of Appeals continues to have its own precedent, just as it was before. And indeed, the Supreme Court in usually has a, has a rule of thumb that you don't decide more than you have to to decide the outcome of who wins you know the parties before it and so if it would indeed be entirely academic to decide the Gonzales if they've already decided this kind of claim can't survive in because of the decision in Twitter v. time now I think it's quite possible that on the same day we get a merits decision in the Twitter case we get a, a notice that it was dismissed as improvidently granted in the Google case
0: thank you Um, I think I'm going to turn at this point to some of our online questions and then we'll throw it open to our in-person audience after that. Um, So, the first one that's come in here, can you comment on uh, Attorney Schnapper or any of the others' performance in front of the court? Is anyone interested in that? And potentially the effects of, of splitting time between Multiple attorneys on the petitioner's side which uh, always in an already in in an environment of sort of mixed arguments already going in looking at the um, Initial cert petition and reply briefs. um, How might that have affected the arguments before the court?
2: Um, Well, Eric Schnapper is a really, you know decorated attorney. I, I think maybe this wasn't his best performance ever, but, but that said, this was a very, very hard case uh, f- for petitioners to win. It, it's, it's not super strong, and I, I think that really came out in the court's questioning. Um, justices that I think perhaps were receptive to reevaluating uh, the kind of status quo for interpreting se- Section 230 realized this, this theory was, was hard to defend.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And you know, we were in the room. I, I don't know if you saw this as well, but I mean, I, you could hear the sort of frustration from Schnapper on you know on audio, but I think we could see it as well. It, it was that that stress and and frustration was um, palpable. So um, you know, uh, but again, I think that's less to to him and more to this this case is just very difficult to to argue. Um, I thought Lisa Blatt very sharp. Um, very prepared uh, i think she did a, a phenomenal job arguing um, on behalf of the respondents
0: the the only concern i had with uh, blatt's arguments was um, her seeming support of the henderson test does anyone want to take a crack at explaining what the henderson test is and why we might not want it to become the rule for 230 jess
3: okay um so i'll try to be as brief as possible on this yeah so the henderson case regards a um i believe it's publicdata.com it's a case it's it's a website that aggregates um, publicly available information about people um, makes it available the person suing in that case uh, was very concerned about the uh the 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 Apparently the information compiled was incorrect about that person. Um, It has to do with uh, FICRA, the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, So that was the kind of data that that was uh, at issue here. Um, And essentially the court in Henderson, the Fourth Circuit upends what has been decades of precedence of Section 230, specifically the Zoran case. They sort of rewrite the the test for um, immunity, which is that, you know, if you're basing your claim on the impropriety of, of, of the content, then that's OK. That Section 230 applies to that. But again, if, it's, if you're not talking about the, the content at issue, if you're talking more about the conduct at issue, which is in this case, they were arguing it was the compilation of the, the data, um, then likely Section 230 doesn't apply. Um, worse off, they sort of narrowed the, the, the roommate's case. When your roommate's case goes to the, the idea that when when you materially contribute as an internet service to the unlawfulness of the content, then Section 230 doesn't apply. But they read that to be a little bit, I I said narrow, they they actually, they broadened it. They read that to mean, um, you know, anytime the service interacts with the content at issue, and that might be, you know, when they curate third-party content, for example. And in the public data case, this was, again, they were grabbing from all sorts of different public information sources and then compiling it and presenting it, Um, the court, seems to say, well, you know, when when you do that, then you become the information content provider, which is extremely problematic when you think about, for example, Google search results, when they contextualize those little snippets for each result that you get, that's all based on third party content, that's based on what's actually available at the website itself. Um, but Google does that in order for you to determine whether that's the the source that you you, you want to uh, click on. For example, is
0: the restaurant open or not?
3: Exactly that, right? Exactly that. Um, and so, you know, I've gotten a lot of questions like, why did why did Blatt um, say she 96% agreed? Why did why did Google endorse that test? Um, you know, I think possibly because it was Fikra um, and it seemed like it was a more narrow issue. Also possibly because. Um, uh, Blatt was looking for a way to show the court that 230 is not limitless, and this felt like a safe issue to to take advantage of. But um, I actually I, I think it would be extremely problematic, and I think the court even asked when when they had said, "You know, do are you are you sure you want to adopt the Henderson test um, interpretation?" Um, I think that was for the reason that this is extremely broad, and it would essentially rewrite 230 precedents.
0: Let's see.
1: I'll make just one point, a yeah. general point on advocacy. I think one lesson to take away from uh, Lisa Blatt's performance is that great advocacy isn't just about arguing every single point. It's about just being the more helpful lawyer, especially in a case like this. The justices are extremely appreciative of people who just have a good grasp of the history and the text and the case law, even if it's not just knowing all the ones that are good for your side. And in particular, if you're able to explain it candidly and in a way that that's clear that you're not being just tendentious on every single point, then you can also be more persuasive because you can show plausibly how your theory fits in with that. And so it's often it's often said that the side that wins is the one that makes the case easier for the justices, and I thought this was a good example of that.
0: I, I would really agree, even when she found herself disagreeing with the justices, she was candid and conversational as, as she did it. Um, and I think that's, that's very important. Um... I guess this is mostly for for you, but uh, what is the likelihood that Congress will take real action on Section 230, and what is this most likely to entail?
4: The other prediction question. Um, So I think that there is definitely a high likelihood, and we have already seen this begin, that members of Congress will introduce legislation trying to address content moderation, whether they do that through amendments to Section 230 directly or through establishing a different type of governance regime or um, other requirements or restrictions is up in the air, but we have seen in the Senate Judiciary hearing about children's safety online. We hear um, comments about the role that Section 230 plays in keeping kids safe online. That is a key priority this Congress for members of both parties. We are also seeing a lot of momentum continue for comprehensive consumer data privacy legislation. Depending on how that's structured, if it is a bill similar to the ADPPA from last Congress, that could have implications for content moderation um, and what types of information folks need to collect about users, can't collect about users, and through the context of targeted advertising, what content they can or cannot display to whom and under what circumstances. Then we're also seeing children's privacy bills have components that require some kind of age assessment. Depending on how that's done, that too could get at some of these issues. So depends on how broadly you interpret it. There's also you know, the algorithm provisions in the ADPPA and the likelihood for other um, AI legislation to advance. All of that could have implications for these recommendation algorithms and automated forms of content moderation as well. Whether anything passes though is, uh, Still an open question.
0: Yeah, I certainly think a, a divided Congress ultimately narrows the scope of, of potential legislation. Let's turn now to our our audience for for questions. Um, I've got one right up here in the front. Start there. Get you next. There a mic? Coming to you. Um, you mentioned uh, child pornography and
5: stuff like that. Which kind of led into the states that are trying to ban access to abortion, uh, anti-LGBTQ. I have a
1: feeling that they're going to say at some point, we're going to change our law to make sure you don't give us results that we don't like. But in in this case, do the algorithms that are done by Google, is the presumption that they can be totally different in every other country? Does every other country have its own jurisdiction here? Does the Supreme Court determine for the world.
3: I you know that's a that's a really good question. Um, it sort of gets at the uh, actual practical impact. I think it, it, I think the court, likely the court, Congress, anyone who's regulating the internet, especially outside the U.S., thinks that that's how Google would approach it, that they would um, be able to sort of, we call it the splinternet. They, they can offer a different internet, act a different type of version of their service to, you know, different markets, for example. Um, practically speaking, you know, right now, these services are using geolocation to be able to um, broadly comply, like, for the example, for the EU, um, you know, I think services are already sort of working towards the Digital Service Act compliance. Um, But in reality, it's it's a technological and and business burden to offer different versions of the service, um, different versions of their algorithm when you get even more granular um, uh, in in different regions. And so I think at least here in the United States, when we're talking about, say, Texas's um, anti-abortion laws, and we're talking about different states right now that are enacting um, children's uh, privacy slash uh, age appropriate design type laws. these these internet services are likely not going to offer like the Texas version of Google search. What's likely to happen here is the most restrictive state um, policy, the one with the most burden, the most technological burden, legal burden, will drive what the internet looks like for the rest of us in, in other states as well.
0: The effects here can look a lot like the textbook market where Texas and California as large populous markets end up driving most textbook decisions for, for national publishers. Now that's not to say that states can't have their own changes, different textbooks, opt-outs, um, but on the internet, broad definitions, broad understandings of concepts tend to be internationalized through these firms. Most American social media platforms use European definitions of hate speech because they have legal definitions, and we don't. And so when they're grasping around for something to use that will satisfy the greatest number of jurisdictions, uh, they'll, they'll take those European standards. And, and in the same vein, I would think that for at least most of the, the Anglosphere or the Western world, if we were to see the Supreme Court upend the rules for algorithms in the United States, then whatever changes platforms came up with would would be applied to Canada and Europe, um, whether similar legal changes were made there or not.
2: It's also possible in the case of like a domestic splinter net, where one state imposes extremely onerous regulations on the expression that can be shared on the internet. The service starts blocking the IP addresses from that state um, if it's if it's so unpalatable or they they feel it would really undermine the uh, the value of the service more broadly.
4: And I think this is a platform architecture question as well. Um, they have these large social media platforms are already dealing with a patchwork of international laws, and there is not one legal standard to dictate what should and should not or um, can and cannot be trafficked through, um, put on, hosted by the Internet. And so the platforms have experience dealing with different regimes in different places already, and they have created architectural features to help deal with that. So the impact, I think, would be felt throughout, but might be felt differentially throughout.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of particular relationships here. You look at Turkey as a state. It's ended up with a lot of power over Western Internet platforms, because it was online early. It has a large market, a lot of people online there. Unlike somewhere like China or North Korea, they haven't cut themselves off from the Western world. They're trading partners with Europe, uh, but they are more authoritarian and have their own way of doing things. And so as a result of this conflux of factors, um, they've been able to, to set the terms for say, pushing Kurdish content off, off some mainstream platforms. Um, but it really varies in a country-by-country country fashion. Um, and so the, the kind of differential effects, I think, are very... Isn't relevant.
2: the standard in Turkey uh, whether it offends Turkishness?
0: Well, there's a law against content offends that Turkishness. offends yeah. Turkishness. And so that's, you know, conceptually not, even when the U.S. or Europe restricts speech, not the way we come at it, um, and so you have a different set then of, of content that might be concerning. I think we have a next, next question right here already. Oh, I just
2: wanted to ask for sort of a high-level overview because um, I thought the discussion on stage was probably directed towards a specialist. And as a general audience member, I didn't really understand the issues from a, a high-level, I, I had never heard of um, 230.
0: Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, so Section 230 is a law passed in 1996 that prevents intermediaries. We often think of platforms here, but it's really any website uh, that carries speech posted by other users. It prevents those intermediaries from being treated as the publisher or held liable for other people's content. So if I post something uh, defaming Tommy um, in a, a YouTube Again. comment, I can be liable for that. I'm the one who's published it. But YouTube is not. And this law was passed in response to a pair of rulings from the early 90s, one in which an intermediary was found liable because it attempted to moderate user content. It attempted to police the libelous speech. But it didn't catch all of it. And so some slipped through. And they were sued over that and held liable for it because they'd made an attempt or a, a commitment to police that kind of speech. And in another case, a platform that didn't attempt to police user speech was treated as a mere distributor and therefore immune from liability. So these two cases were seen to create perverse incentives. Platforms would be punished if they made attempts to police user content but weren't perfect in their execution. So Section 230 was passed as a a corrective measure to, to fix the outcomes of these two cases by, on the one hand, immunizing platforms against what their liability for what their users had said but on the other hand empowering them to police user speech however they saw fit and that's kind of formed the the bedrock legal basis for online speech governance ever since it's been left up to these platforms to set and enforce their own rules
3: and importantly as well, um, Section 230 also protects users. Users are built into the statute as well. And so what that means is um, when you share content, when you like content and you know, endorse it, when you retweet content, you too can use Section 230 to protect you for the speech that you didn't put uh, uh, speak or write as well, um, which is important because I don't know about y'all, but I would not be engaging with any content online if I could also be liable for it as well. Um, uh, did you want us to go over the Gonzalez case as well? Yeah. Yeah. Um so at issue in Gonzalez, so basically what what this revolves around, um Nohemi Gonzalez was a, a 23-year-old US citizen. She was a student, she was studying abroad in Paris at the time um during the uh really unfortunate, tragic um Paris terrorist attacks that were uh, claimed by ISIS as, again, I think it's 2015. Um The estate decided to sue YouTube over those attacks because they alleged that um, in YouTube recommending alleged ISIS content or ISIS videos, YouTube had a hand in radicalizing the folks who perpetrated those attacks, Um, which seems tenuous because it is. Um, Again, we don't know if those folks saw the videos, we don't know what was at those videos, um, but that was essentially what's at issue here is um, when YouTube, you know, recommends that content, when they use their algorithms to recommend that content, can they be proximately liable or, or did they contribute to the, the causation of those attacks as well?
0: And, and the link here to section 230 is, you know, are they the co-creators of the content that they recommend? Is it merely the content provided by another that they're sorting for users, or do they become a developer or co-creator of it, as plaintiffs argue, by organizing and recommending it? So that's where the case becomes about the scope of that Section 230 protection. Has that been a...
2: Um, I would also add that the, the part of Section 230 that's at issue in Gonzales, so C1, you can really think of it as the basis of free speech on the Internet in a way. So without 230 C1's protection from liability, Yelp wouldn't exist because you could sue them for tortious interference with business, or at least they would be um, chilled from posting many negative uh, user reviews, which are helpful to people like you and me when we're assessing whether to go to a restaurant. Uh, same with Google. Uh, searching over health or wellness issues, if they could be held liable for for negligence or, or something like that, they would be much less inclined to provide that service.
1: And also just to connect that history, you, you talked about the two cases that kind of led to 230. That's one of the debates that was underlying the argument particularly Justice Jackson which we talked about earlier where she suggested a narrower reading so one of the questions of congressional intent is was the intent sort of only to overrule that decision and go no further. It seemed like Justice Jackson had a theory that basically it's only about claims that you failed (coughs) to take something down when we asked you to so this is one of those questions where does does the particular thing that prompted Congress control how we interpret it or does it, do we look at the text itself which is a lot broader than just that particular type of claim. Let's
0: see, one question there.
5: It was really interesting to note that uh, Ted Cruz and several other Republican senators filed a brief that very much was against uh, strong liabilities, and I think that's representative of a, a larger current, at least in the Republican Party, that is at least on this issue, not not market-based, not free speech-based, not limited government-based, right? And so I'm really curious to hear um, from each of you kind of what your organization's maybe recommended strategy or rhetoric or best argument is to engage with this growing and increasingly strong segment, at least the Republican Party, that says, you know, yeah, that's great, but on big tech, all of the principles go out the window, and this is about scoring points, this is about something besides limited government or besides you know our normal constitutional or, or textualist principles. How do you engage with that and, and persuasively beat it down?
0: Yeah, so I, I think first of all, I was just so relieved to see that the Supreme Court itself or conservatives on the Supreme Court didn't seem to be taken with that sort of attitude um, and and it's valuable for the the conservative movement as a whole that they weren't um, ultimately i think the best way to sort of sell the status quo rules to the right um, is by pointing to the alternatives and and the relative value of the internet in relation to something like the cable news environment Um, for speech and speakers on the right. Um, There's always somewhere new to go online. Um, You know, I think we can make too much of the current crop of platforms, but they are always changing and rotating through, and there are always alternatives outside of them. But really, in this case, especially to hack away at 230 in order to get at big tech would be to hamstring those alternative platforms. Because suddenly, all of their service providers down through the stack don't just face kind of lefty mobbing if they're they're um, providing the wrong platform parlor or truth social or whatever with DDoS protection or um, a, a DNS address, domain name address. Um, but instead, they're facing real liability and people suing them over hosting COVID disinformation or, or whatever the claim may be. Um, and so I, I think it's important to recognize just how much worse things could be, uh, especially given the cultural climate that the right worries about or, or fears. Um anyone else i'll note the neutrality point is
1: particularly important to you know the right leaning or explicitly conservative social media sites like you mentioned truth social if you have a rule that you know moderation algorithms whatever that are from a particular partisan bent wave section 230, you're particularly hamstringing explicitly ideological sites like that. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. If conservatives want to have some sites that come at it from their point of view, it particularly doesn't make sense to punish ideological sites more than others.
4: I can also chime in and just make the very obvious point that in a divided Congress, you know, you're going to have to work with Democrats in the Republican Party And so if you want to get something done. So if you do want to take some form of action with regards to big tech in the form of legislation, it's going to need to be bipartisan. I'll also note um, it, it's
2: not all Republicans. I completely agree with you that there's a there's a groundswell uh, in favor of 230 reform, which I think is wrong. Um, but for example, uh, Rick Santorum filed a brief highlighting that uh, conservative speech is often considered more controversial. It's m- because it's more controversial. It's more likely that somebody may litigate over it. Uh, COVID, uh, climate, etc. Um, and without C1s protection, platforms can be like legally uh, browbeaten into not hosting it because they cannot afford the, the liability that it would it would cause for them, and we don 't want uh, that an internet without free discourse is a is a pretty bad one
0: that that controversiality point I think is is very important, especially as we look at some of these chat GPT outputs, um, differential treatment of requests to write poems about Biden and Trump. Um, which aren't themselves an example of bias by open AI, but instead how, through these opaque systems, some command, like surface less controversial content, actually comes out on the user end or or for the user. What does it look like when you tell a big unthinking machine avoid controversial issues? Well, it won't write the poem about Donald Trump. Um, And so when we think about heaping liability on these sorts of recommender systems, uh, those are exactly the kinds of outputs or lack of output um, that we'll get with greater liability. I think we have time for one more question, right in the middle there. Uh,
5: Thank you. This has been a a really interesting panel. Um, It seemed like at one point during oral argument, uh, petitioners suggested that somehow you could distinguish between search results, which would be protected even under their theory, where certain recommendations would not be protected. I was wondering if folks might be able to comment on the merits of that line of reasoning or argument.
0: I mean, the first, um, the the one sort of line of distinction that I, I come to or think of is that a search is a response to a singular agentic user prompt. You type in the search, you get results then and there. But as a practical matter, I think it becomes very hard to distinguish that from, a ranking based on your past preferences, likes, dislikes, etc, especially when contemporary one-off search results are also a product of those things. They take those into account, and, and that, in particular, makes drawing any kind of clear line hard. This is a wonderful question to, to end on for everyone: Where, uh, where do you, can you draw a line?
3: I think it's technological fiction. Um, Speaking as a technologist, I'm I'm right there with you, Will. Um, There is no difference, again, between me retweeting content, which is an endorsement of that content, YouTube recommending that content, which is an endorsement of that content, and Google putting out a first page search results with the top three results for what you searched, also an endorsement of that that content Um, and i use endorsement very broadly here but again it's it goes to show that this is what the service chooses to prioritize so i think i think it was really reflective too in the oral arguments this kind of gets back to the point of the the petitioner's attorney was struggling um because there it is a technological fiction it is impossible to draw to, to draw those lines
0: and an endorsement is entirely subjective as well. There are different, you know, there's positive and negative forms of endorsement. If I Google insects to avoid while traveling in Africa, I, I don't think that uh, I'm, I'm not expecting that the results are things I should should go for or touch or pick up, um, and we wouldn't read Google search results in yeah, that context.
2: It. Yeah, versus mosquitoes. Um, I think we saw Justice Thomas really wrestling with this as well. At one point, he said uh, recommendations, but I really feel uncomfortable calling them recommendations. They're more suggestions, or even. And then Justice Alito said something to the effect of, "Would anything but random sorting?" of info, which Lisa Vlatt said would be the worst TV channel ever, uh, be not an endorsement under this theory. I I think they recognized in real time, uh, if, if we accept this theory, search goes straight down.
1: Yeah, and it seemed like it was just more of a pragmatic, an attempt to draw a line that doesn't really make a lot of logical sense, but reaches a conclusion people are comfortable with. No one wants to lose their... Usable, useful Google search, so how do we reassure people you won't lose that, but still win our case?
3: Which I think is also probably why um, Blatt endorsed the Henderson test as well. Because again, I think it felt like, you know, when we're talking about FICRA, it's more of a narrow issue. Um, it's different in some way from, you know, Google search curation, which I don't technically agree with, but I, I, I see where she was coming from.
4: And depending on how this gets interpreted, it could make legal research more difficult, too. So for all the lawyers out there, um, I don't think anyone wants that to be more time consuming than it can already be.
3: 2.30 applies to Westlaw.
5: Well,
0: on that note, thank you all for coming out, watching this panel today. Thank you very much to to my panelists uh, for giving us their, their expert opinion.